Welcome to Parlando, a podcast for classical voice North America that features conversations with artists and administrators who have decisive views about the evolving role of classical music and opera in the 21st century. For the first two episodes, I spoke with the violinists Augustine Hadelish and the composer violinist Daniel Bernard Romain. For this episode, I interviewed two educators, very passionate educators, who have made it their mission to expand access to music instruction in New York City public schools, more than half of which don't have a full-time music educator on staff. I think music has an impact on the quality of being a good human being and be able to express yourself. I think music has this huge impact. It saves people. It provides something to do. The arts can provide outlets for students, and that's extremely vital. Music can save and it can heal if we allow it to and if we believe that it can. And then when we allow it to have a space at the table with everything else equally, we will find that our school communities are much happier. Teachers will most likely be a lot less stressed. Administrators will be happier. And the students are going to have a great time if we just believe that there's a space at the table for music in the arts. That was Dr. Kevin Johnson, a baritone and teacher who for the last two years has been an instructional supervisor for education through music, a nonprofit founded in 1991 that now provides music instruction in 50 New York City schools. Dr. Johnson, who helps teachers with lesson planning and curriculum development, has a doctorate from the Catholic University of America and is taught in public schools in Chicago and Washington, D.C. And all the music you'll hear on the show today is performed by children who are participating in education through music's programs. Anne Fitzgibbon is the founder and executive director of the Harmony Program. She's a clarinetist who studied at Barnard College and the Juilliard School of Music, and she's worked in the Mayor's Office on Cultural Affairs and Education Initiatives, as well as Director of Operations for the City University of New York. In 2007, she went to Venezuela on a Fulbright scholarship to study El Sistema, Venezuela's internationally recognized and renowned model of classical music instruction. She's the founder and executive director of the Harmony Program in New York, which provides music instruction to underserved children in New York City and Long Island. You hear people now talk about music for social change, and that's something that people really didn't say before El Sistema popularized it. El Sistema was a model where hundreds of thousands of children, and many of them from the most desperate circumstances, were learning to play music at the highest levels. And in doing so, we're also developing the kinds of skills that we're getting them out of the barrio and opening up opportunities for them as teachers and performers. It really was a model showing how music could change the life circumstances of children. I think that's what inspired most of us. I think we know that music education works. We know what it can do. It's If you're practicing music, I always say, if you are practicing music every day, like we encourage our students to do in the Harmony program, you're practicing listening skills and following directions and cooperating and expressing yourself creatively. If you're practicing all those things, you get better at that. And depriving students of something that I see as so academically rich is to me irresponsible. And we are only widening that achievement gap. 
programs like mine are filling in a, what I see as, as stepping in where the Department of Education should be providing every child with a, a quality music education. I remember when I first started the Harmony program, my father, who was an educator, who's a public school superintendent, he used to say to me, Anne, education, music education should be in the school day. And I would say, I agree, but it's in certain communities, rather than wait until it's back as a part of the comprehensive curriculum as it should be, we're going in and trying to reach the kids who really have a passion for it. Because if we don't, who will? That would be the true tragedy, I think, if all these kids are deprived of it. Right. Most kids love music. I think it's inherent in us as human beings. Even if I meet so many adults who insist they're not musical. And I say, do you like music? Do you listen to music? And if you do, you are musical. I believe we're all musical. And so children, before they get to the age where they're self-conscious, like like adults are, they're excited about music. There isn't a child out there who doesn't find joy in music making. So at the very least, having music education provides them with the joy they need in their school day. What I worry about is if generation after generation of school leaders have been deprived themselves of music Mm. education, it's harder for them to understand how important it is. So that's why I say my job is it evolves. As I'm doing this work, I'm realizing that a big component of what I do is advocating for it and having to convince principals, you should demand this. Use this is your parents in your school should be expecting this of this school. Mm. Your children should have this. This belongs in a strong education, in yeah. a comprehensive education. In New York City, when we work in schools where 15% of the kids are reading and doing math at grade level, 15%. I mean, these are the kids who should have every possible advantage at their disposal. You know, we should be targeting these kids with everything that they need to compete and to succeed. And yet the kids who who stand most to benefit from something like music education are the very students who are least likely to have it. Dr. Johnson received an excellent music education at his public school, where he sang in the chorus, learned several brass instruments, and performed in the band. He says that his music teachers, who he's still in touch with, served as important mentors and role models for him while he was growing up. I still update my teacher regularly just because my band teacher and my choral teacher were my mothers away from the home. And if I did not do the right thing, they would hold me accountable very quickly. The uh, choral teacher actually lived in the same building as me. So if I was not dressed in a way that she felt represented myself and my parents in a positive manner, I would get corrected in the elevator, whether it was going in or out, it didn't matter. Or if she saw me acting up on the way home, she would literally pull over the car and get out and correct me in the middle of a lawn. It didn't matter where. That was just who she was. And my band teacher had a diverse group of kids in the band from all types of backgrounds. And it was some tough, really tough love, but it was a place we were able to go to when things weren't going well. It was a place for us to hide. It was a place for us to seek peace. And the program is still very much so thriving, which I am relieved to see. Just, yeah, very relieved to see. Do you think that most of your teachers at Education Through Music think of themselves as providing something more than just music education? Do you think they see them as leadership figures for these kids? Absolutely. Yeah. The goal is to not just be a music teacher, but to be an integral part of the school community, be a part of the school and the students and the families that you serve. I find that the best teachers are the ones that are connected 
um, to their students. So, you know, I have this fantastic veteran teacher. I'll give a shout out to a PS 103 in New York. So they did a jazz appreciation, what's called Kahoot, which is like this gamified um, assessment tool that's mm-hmm. uh, virtual. And the kids had a blast. They knew their information. Um, they knew more than the information. And it was just this positive experience where kids, you know, say, saying that they missed the teacher. They wanted to come see him. It, it was this it's a beautiful thing to see when you get to see our teachers interact with students and understand how really close to them they are. You're going to get music teachers that are deeply connected to students beyond the notes on the page and the sounds that we hear. They're going to be mother and father figures, brothers, sister figures, whomever, parental figures, positive people figures. They're going to be out there and they're going to be in the music classroom providing that space for children. And I think that's that's just, it's warming to see. You know, and I, and I wish I wish more people understood that or were able to actually see and feel it for themselves. And maybe they'd understand the importance of the arts and our students. An article published in 2019 in the Washington Post had the headline, Here's What's Missing in Music Education, Cultural and Social Relevance. The Harmony Program and Education Through Music both strive to offer music programs that meet the needs of kids from a very diverse range of backgrounds. Often we provide this education to a group of students and they don't see themselves in front of them. They don't see themselves in the presentations, in the music or the artwork or in the history or in the the writing. We have been very much so stuck in this traditional loop. I think education through music has been very, very good about allowing us to try to break that that loop and break that wall, if you will. And so the first and foremost, the first person or being that would be able to change that is the teachers. The teachers are the ones that can look at the classroom, talk to the students, understand who they are and where they're from, and then make suggestions on things about history and repertoire. Western European history is kind of the the gold standard of the thing that's always shared. We, as youth, as kids, learn about Bach. I remember Beethoven a lot. I, I remember, I forget the, the Beethoven movie, but you know, I remember Beethoven movie. I remember the Mozart movie. Mm-hmm. I remember these things. I remember learning about them. But when it, for me, musically, in my public education schooling, so my K through 12, I don't remember a lot about musicians who looked like me. Uh, occasionally, most and most certainly black history may be celebrated with something jazz related, a tribute to Louis Armstrong, that sort of thing. But where's Miss, where's Florence Price? Where's Harry Burley? We are these learning be- beings and children are these beings that are sponges for knowledge. Why can't we just show them that more exists? It's a very simple solution that just takes someone agreeing that there's room at the table um, for all to be seen. And at the end of the day, I think that's what this work speaks of when we're trying to make room at the table for other composers, when we're trying to show black and brown students in a classroom that there are black and brown composers out there in all genres that you can experience and you can fall in love with. It's okay. That just means we're creating spaces for knowledge to be shared a little bit more deeply. And we're not being so superficial and so uh, traditional anymore. I, I think that's a good word. Tradition. Music education is so full of traditions. We have a hard time letting go. 
I'm walking along this path. And at the same time, we're seeing more and more black faces, black and brown bodies being killed and facing injustice a little bit more clearly, even though most of us who have lived in our skin understand that that has existed. It's just being seen more. So therefore it's being felt. And thanks to social media, I do believe is being felt even more deeply. This work that I'm doing with uh, teachers we're, ex we're examining repertoire. That's kind of like a first step. The idea later on will be to formally put out a request to start creating repertoire from marginalized communities, from the Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian populations, from the populations that we see in our classrooms, ask those very same composers to start creating works for our students. I think there's a lot of works from minoritized composers that exist, but a lot of them are collegiate and above. We see a lot of works for more disciplined musicians, if you want to use that word, or more trained musicians. But there's not a lot of repertoire being given for our young ones, at least that I know of. If anyone has anything, I'll gladly take it. But this, so our, our next goal will be to start putting our money where our mouth is and start funding the creation of music that will better reflect our students. The composers will better reflect our students. One of the things that we do that we think distinguishes our model is we have a formal process for professional development. So every year we have up to 50 hours of, of training that we require our teachers to go through. So we have to encourage our teachers to provide that kind of diversity in their repertoire. And one of the things we had the pleasure of engaging in a couple of years ago was Rachel Barton Pine came to the city and worked with our students and provided us with so much, so many resources, so much material. They made music together. They talked about these different composers. They were playing the music of Black composers. And our kids, when we asked them, when Rachel sat down with them and she was asking them questions, and God, they had they had devoured these materials. Mm -hmm. So it's not only adding the voices and the and the works of of Black composers, but Asian composers and Latin American composers exposing our kids to different genres. They want to hear lots of different voices and they want to see themselves not only in the past, you know, in the history of the genre, but they want to find their place in the future of it as well. Sometimes we'll have teachers who have interesting ideas about things they want to introduce this year or in, in, in the, the classroom. And then we'll also actively engage our families and our communities in what interests them. What do they want to play? What do they want mm -hmm. to hear? We work with so many different communities across mm. the North City. I and mean, we're in Chinatown and there's a Chinese population. We're in Washington Heights and there are all Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And we're in Midwood in Brooklyn and there are Afro-Caribbean populations. So there's just a wealth of diversity. And I feel like our program and, and the entire genre is, is better for it, for being mm. more inclusive. How did the pandemic impact your students? And did you lose any students after the first shutdown? We did. We lost some of our students. I heard our kids saying, and literally like one of our kids was like, I feel like I'm in jail and I have bars on my windows. Some of our parents said we have one computer in a household with five children who are all supposed to be engaged in online learning right now. So we were competing with some of those pressures at home. Others of them were simply overwhelmed. So we um, reached out by phone, by text, uh, calling. We translated our outreach into different languages to make sure there was no problem in communicating with them. But we lost probably, I would say not 50%, but close to it in the first few months of the pandemic. Oh, that's As we progressed into later spring, more of our students started connecting. And so by the summer, our numbers were creeping up. We had more like 60, 65% of our kids. So it took some time. But yeah, at the start, we, we saw some of our students leave. 
And yes, we'll do all we can to re-engage them in the fall. And then we also tried to come up with new ways of engaging our kids and keeping it fun and interesting enough that they would want to show up for another hour or two on their computers after a long day at school. So we developed some really interesting programs for them. One of them was a composition project that was new for us. We worked with the Very Young Composers program at the New York Philharmonic with John Deke. And our kids engaged in writing their first original piece of music to express their experiences with the pandemic. And they wrote an incredibly powerful piece of music. And that's, again, I think about how do we get our kids excited about music? These are some of the things we learned from the pandemic. We will be carrying forward post-pandemic. We learned a lot about what kind of programming our kids are, are hungry for. And we hadn't been offering. Composition was just one of those things. Mm-hmm. We provided purely online professional development for our teachers. We invested, again, in platforms and resources for teachers to use with their students. We invested in music tech. So we have things where students can create, you know, studio tracks and manipulate audio loops and samples online. There are audio files and PDFs. There's a whole lot that's being generated to support teachers. And now that they're in person, it's kind of like we've had to slightly pivot again and help make sure that we're providing resources that speak to not just in-person, but also asynchronous. So, you know, we keep pivoting, but we keep surviving. And I think the the best thing that we about us is that we are acknowledging that we need to pivot instead of trying, you know, trying to hold strong traditions, because music is very, especially music today, is very rooted in tradition. And I think ETM has been working really hard to maintain that level of fluidity throughout this because it requires a lot of patience, a lot of professional development (laughs) Mm -hmm. to keep on making these changes. Things like investments in technology, you know, education and music made an investment in technology for teachers to be able to do their jobs effectively. see a direct a direct correlation between say a kid that's struggling and then starts music classes and seems to start to thrive in other areas yeah i mean i think the value of a music education is is not always immediately obvious and it's such a long-term investment we make in kids that's what makes my job challenging i have to sometimes convince principals principals who are struggling to get their their reading and math scores up why should they invest extra time and resources in music? And that is because I believe music gives children a foundation that really supports future learning. It teaches them the kinds of skills they need to succeed. And yeah, I see all kinds of changes in our students very quickly. So yes, I've I've seen children who struggle in math. We had a student who was really struggling in math. And I even tried tutoring him just to get a sense for how far behind he was. And he was a student who had been held back already a couple of years when he was in the sixth grade. And I I worked with him on some basic addition and subtraction. And clearly he was so frustrated that he didn't even try. He was beyond trying. But this is the same student that I would observe in his music class counting. And when he was asked you know, how many beats does a whole note get? And he'd answer four. How many beats does it get in cut time? And he says two. And clearly these mathematical principles were something he was capable of understanding in a different context, in a context where he wasn't convinced that he that he was a failure, that he was no good. And I think when people think that music education is superfluous or a kind of frivolous luxury, they're not really thinking deeply about all the different skills, as you said, counting skills and teamwork and cooperation and 
right. analytical skills and so many skills that form the benchmark of so many other things. One of the stories that I that I like to share is of a principal in the South Bronx. She and I were seated next to each other waiting for a recital to happen on stage. And she watches her students filing up the stairs and they take their seats. And again, they're holding their instruments in rest position. They're waiting for their teacher. And she leans over to me and she excitedly says, oh, this is amazing. I can't believe what you've done. And I said, well, just wait a minute. They're actually going to play some music. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, I don't care what they play. I have never seen that group of students sit quietly and attentively for anyone. There is so much rich learning that takes place in a music class and in an ensemble. They learn to focus. You know, they have to actually pay attention to what they're doing for an extended period of time. And that can be challenging for all of us. Mm -hmm. They learn to follow instruction. They learn to sort of respect structure and rules. But at the same time, they learn to unleash their own creative voices and to work collaboratively. Who picks what instruments? Because I assume some of these kids perhaps aren't that familiar with a flute versus a clarinet versus an oboe or... Right. What what surprises me still is how many kids are unfamiliar with the band and orchestral instruments. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll sit down. We interview them one-on-one. We call them meet and greets. And we'll uh, talk with them about the instruments that we're offering in the school. And so we'll say, do you know what a trumpet is? And the student might nod. And I'll say, do you know how to hold the trumpet? But they might, you know, then they'll, then they'll stop. Mm-hmm. They really don't know what a trumpet looks like. We come into the school with a couple of teachers who will demonstrate the instruments for them. This is what I experienced when I was a young musician myself. And I picked the clarinet. I listened to people play. And I picked the instrument that, that you know, really resonated with me. The kids get to hear the instruments, meet the teachers, and then pick an instrument to play. They get to go around the room, maybe hold the instrument, sometimes try to produce a sound. And then, of course, we don't want to end up with all of the kids in the trumpet class. So sometimes you you massage the process a little bit and you might say, you look like a trombone. We talk about music as though it's, it's decorative, it's extracurricular, it's inessential. And I had never heard anybody talk about music's importance the way that Jose Antonio Abreu, the founder of El Sistema, did. And I should have known this as a musician, and I think I did. Deep inside me, I think I understood it when I heard it. But I never heard people advocating for music, saying that this this is a human right. I never heard anybody talk about the broad social value of musical training. That, That stayed with me. And the way Jose Antonio Abreu would talk about the the commonalities among children, Venezuelan children were no different than the children that I was teaching here in the States. Their circumstances were very different, but they had the same need that we all have, a need for a sense of security, a need for a sense of identity and belonging, and and a need for a supportive community. They need those things to thrive. And the fact that music can be a source for all of that, for all of these basic human needs, was something I, I frankly had never given a lot of thought to. I just want to know that we're, we're instilling in our students a belief in their abilities, and they can take that wherever they want to. I was talking to my wife about all these people with, you know, doctorates and businesses and these great ideas that are out there that I feel connected with because we all graduated from the same space. And the one thing a lot of us all shared was the music program, whether it was my high school choral choral program or the instrumental program, the marching band. A lot of the, the students that were connected to that are out here thriving. Wise words indeed from Ann Fitzgibbon and Dr. Kevin Johnson both passionate advocates for expanding music education in New York City public schools. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode of Parlando Musical Matters with Vivian Schweitzer.